In their quest to bully everyone in any position of prominence into publicly ripping President Trump, the media have set their sights on New England Patriots quarterback Tom Brady. Brady became a campaign issue when, in September 2015, somebody took a photo of a Make America Great Again hat in his locker and said he hoped Trump became president. Trump repeatedly referenced Brady's support on the campaign trail, too. Then, after becoming president, Trump bragged that Brady had called him to congratulate him. All of this prompted USA Today sports writer Nancy Armour to write a piece demanding Brady denounce Trump, quote, Tom Brady no longer gets a pass on his friendship with Donald Trump, not after this weekend, when the country boiled over in rage and indignation at Trump's decision to turn America's back on refugees. He thinks the friendship should be off limits, but it doesn't work that way. If you stake out a position, you need to own it. Brady might not agree with Trump's views or his policies, but in refusing to publicly disavow Trump's actions, Brady is giving tacit endorsement to both Trump and the chaos he created. Brady inserted himself into the national firestorm. He can't be surprised that people want to know more. Brady, for his part, has refused to talk about Trump. He said, I'm not talking politics at all because I just want to focus on the positive aspects of this game and my teammates and the reason why we're here, which is smart, given that football is a team sport and those who have supported Trump have come under public fire from their own teammates and players for doing so when Rex Ryan endorsed Trump created this huge firestorm. This follows on the heels of the left's attempt to bully Taylor Swift into more clearly endorsing the Women's March, force companies to reject Trump's executive orders, rip Uber for the crime of providing people at JFK airport rides, destroy Sage Steele for having the temerity to want to make her flight, and blackball Kurt Schilling for likening radical jihadists to Nazis. This is ideological hectoring that frays the social fabric. Voting for Donald Trump doesn't mean you have to defend every decision he makes any more than voting for Bill Clinton meant you were answerable for his perjury. And turning celebrities into moral guides is always a risky business, given their regular penchant for amorality in any case. Listen, America is rooting against Tom Brady by polling data in the Super Bowl, but that will change if the media decide to declare him the enemy for holding a political opinion of which they do not approve. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. Okay, so we're going to get to the so-called Monday Night Massacre in a second. We're going to debunk some myths about what just happened with Donald Trump firing the acting attorney general and what exactly happened there. But first, we have to thank one of our great advertisers, Bull and Branch. So Bull and Branch is one of my favorite advertisers, truly, because... And I've bought, I think, three sets of extra sheets from them. If you're somebody who has a tough time sleeping then one of the reasons you may be having a tough time sleeping is because the sheets you're sleeping on that you don't really think about are just not comfortable. You think they're comfortable because they're soft, but it turns out they don't breathe. Or you think that they're comfortable, even though they actually are just a tarp that you bought from the local gas station, which is how I used to buy sheets. I mean, if you're like me, you don't know anything about sheets, and you're like, okay, well, thread count, that's what matters, thread count. No, thread count is not what matters. Quality of the cotton is what is is what matters. Quality of the weave is what matters. Bolin Branch is the best. They are the best. Uh, I love their product. And right now, if you go to bullandbranch.com and you use promo code Ben, you get 50 bucks off your first set of sheets. Bullandbranch.com today for 50 bucks off your first set of sheets. Luxury sheets, you know, th- this is the sort of thing that makes you feel rich. I've always said to my wife that you know, it's, it's the little things in life that cost maybe a little more than, than you normally would spend that make you feel rich for a long time, not the kind of big expenditures. You know, and, and having a great set of sheets is one of those things that makes you feel wealthy because you sleep better and because every time you get into, into bed, you feel super-duper comfortable. And that is certainly true of Bowen Branch sheets. It's why three ex-presidents, uh, and in the case of Bill Clinton, their lovers presumably sleep on Bowen Branch sheets. Uh, and so you should check that out. BowlandBranch.com, promo code BEN. You get 50 bucks off your first set of sheets 
truly great company and uh, very excited to be associated with them. Make sure that you use promo code BEN when you order your sheets so you know, so they know that we sent you. Okay, so we begin, of course, with the big story of the morning and of last evening, which is Donald Trump's late night firing of the assistant, well, the acting attorney general. So remember, Loretta Lynch is now gone. She's resigned. And Jeff Sessions has not yet been approved, President Trump's pick for attorney general. And that leaves this lady named Sally Yates. So Sally Yates was the person who was the acting attorney general. And she released a statement yesterday in which she suggested that she was not going to enforce or even defend in court the, the Trump immigration and refugee executive order. And her statement really had nothing to do with the law. Her statement was just grandstanding. It was her saying, I'm not going to defend this law because I don't think it's right. Here's what she actually said. She said, I am responsible for ensuring that the positions we take in court remain consistent with this institution's solemn obligation to always seek justice and stand for what is right. Well, no, actually, that is not your job. Your job is to defend everything under the law, meaning that if there's no reasonable defense of the statute, that's one thing. If there's no reasonable defense of an executive order, that's one, if it's unconstitutional, that's one thing. But she doesn't even make that argument. Her statement basically just says, I'm going to do what I think is right as acting attorney general. Well, no, that's not your job. The attorney general serves at the pleasure of the president, swears an oath to the Constitution. If you're not claiming that the executive order is unconstitutional, which you can't since it's not. The executive order is not unconstitutional. Immigrants to the country do not have any rights under the Constitution, meaning if you're not yet a citizen, if you're just trying to immigrate or if you're just a refugee, you don't have rights under the Constitution of the United States. So clearly this is not unconstitutional. Yates says instead, I just don't feel like doing it, which makes her a hero on the left. So Donald Trump immediately tweets out, the Democrats are delaying my cabinet picks for purely political reasons. We'll talk about that in a second. They have nothing going but to obstruct. Now I have an Obama AG. And then Trump fired her. Right? So the administration on the firing sounds like it was dictated by Trump personally. I mean, it really is like it's, it's in full Trumpian language. You, you can tell. I mean, you really, it goes, the acting attorney general, Sally Yates, has betrayed the Department of Justice by refusing to enforce a legal order designed to protect the citizens of the United States. This order was approved as to form and legality by the Department of Justice Office of Legal Counsel. Ms. Yates is an Obama administration appointee who's weak on borders and very, very weak on illegal immigration. That's the part that sounds like Trump. And then he goes on talking about it's serious. Time to get serious about protecting our country. He calls for tougher vetting measures for individuals. He says it's reasonable and necessary to protect our country, you know, repeating himself. So, but, you know, the syntax doesn't matter here. Here's the bottom line. Trump did the right thing here. He had to fire her. And it was clear she was going to be fired. From the minute that she started doing this sort of moral preening while working for Trump, it was obvious that she was going to go the way of the dodo bird in this job. And Trump's spokesperson you know, basically said that today. And Trump's spokesperson is essentially right. Now, the Democrats are going nuts over all this. The Democrats are saying this is the end of the world. They're, they're portraying her as a hero. Chuck Schumer, the Senate minority leader, he came out. He said, Yates is a profile in courage. This is a clip... Yeah, you got it. And while they were going on, of course, we had a Monday night massacre. Sally Yates, a person of great integrity who follows the law, was fired by the president. She was fired because she would not enact, pursue the executive order on the belief that it was illegal, perhaps unconstitutional. It was a profile in courage. It was a brave act and a right act. And the president and his people who were in the White House learned something from this. 
First, that we are a nation that's a rule of law. And okay. you just can't... So that what he's saying here is absolute nonsense. No, it does not say that you're a nation that respects the rule of law when the attorney general refuses to do her job and defend in court measures that are clearly constitutional and clearly legal, or at least arguably legal. What's, what's interesting here is when Schumer, there are two things that are interesting. First of all, when Schumer suddenly says that it's a Monday night massacre, we'll talk about that in a second. Is this akin to the Saturday night massacre when Nixon essentially fired his attorney general back in 1974 in the middle of Watergate? Is it like that or is it not like that? We'll talk about that in one second. The second thing that he says here that's pretty amazing is he says that she did the right thing, that she, she was saying that it was unconstitutional and illegal. She never says that. Sally Yates never said this was unconstitutional. She never even said it was illegal. Sally Yates basically said, I don't feel like enforcing this, so I'm not going to. I hate that kind of stuff. In the state of California, we had this situation with our now Senator Kamala Harris. When she was Attorney General out here in the state of California, Kamala Harris did this routine where she refused to defend Proposition 8. The people of California voted for traditional marriage, and it didn't make a difference to her. She just refused to defend it in court, and so Proposition 8 basically was struck down by the Supreme Court on the grounds that no one was willing to defend it. That was gross. It was her job to defend it, whether or not she agreed with it. When your job is to do something, whether or not you agree with it, it's your job to do it. Now, it's amazing. The left is saying that this is just great heroism. I remember when they thought that, that Kim Davis, you remember her, she's the, the Kentucky County Court Clerk who refused to sign same-sex marriage licenses and issue them and told her aides not to do it. And they actually threw her in jail for refusing to do that because they couldn't fire her because she was elected. So instead they threw her in jail. And people on the left said that was totally fine. Of course they should throw her in jail. There's a stronger case for Kim Davis than there is for Sally Yates here, because the fact is that Yates doesn't even contend this is illegal. At least Kim Davis was saying it's unconstitutional for the Supreme Court to basically write same-sex marriage into the Constitution. In any case, the state obviously had the authority to do what it did with Kim Davis, and obviously Trump has the authority to do what he did with Sally Yates. So, as far as the Watergate thing, first of all, I think it's, we should quote here Carl Bernstein. Carl Bernstein was one of the reporters, as in Woodward and Bernstein, who investigated Watergate. He says, trying to liken what Trump just did to Sally Yates to, to what happened at the Saturday Night Massacre is ridiculous. For people who don't know, the Saturday Night Massacre, 1973, Richard Nixon demands the firing of the independent prosecutor Archibald Cox in the Watergate investigation. And then when the AG, Elliot Richardson, and Deputy AG, a guy named William Ruckelshaus, refused to fire him, he fires both of them. Right? That's called the Saturday Night Massacre. Carl Bernstein says, no, this is not like that. Do you think that, that she needed to go? There's, there's a big difference, because the Saturday Night Massacre uh, was really about firing uh, the Attorney General uh, when Nixon was the target of an investigation and was actively obstructing justice. Uh, I think the President is within his, within his rights here to fire the Attorney General, uh, that he has that ability. Um, and it's not wise that he did. But what's really happened here is that the president and his presidency uh, is in chaos. And it's apparent to all but his most serious defenders and those who are his greatest defenders and advocates. But for Republicans on Capitol Hill, who I'm talking to, who are doubting uh, his abilities, uh, doubting even his stability uh, under pressure. Uh, this is an extraordinary series of events. We now have hundreds of thousands of people who have been going into the streets 
as a result of this. Relevant. What Bernstein says about the Monday Night Massacre is relevant. It's not like the Saturday Night Massacre. Saturday Night Massacre, again, was pursued because Archibald Cox was subpoenaing the Nixon tapes. And Nixon said no, and I'm going to fire you. And then he went to his AG, and his AG said no, so he fired the AG. So it was an attempted cover-up. Now, was it legal for Nixon to do it? Actually, it was. It was absolutely legal for Nixon to fire the attorney general. And in fact, there's a solid case to be made that all of these independent prosecutor laws are actually unconstitutional. This is a case that Justice Scalia made back in the 1980s. He said there's a unitary executive, right? The Constitution doesn't say anything about there being an investigative council, some independent council, who gets to rove around investigating the president of the United States. In fact, this is what Democrats were saying when Kenneth Starr was doing it under the Independent Counsel Act, which is why they allowed it to expire. So there have been long-standing constitutional and legal questions about whether you ought to have independent counsel doing this. But she's not even independent. Sally Yates isn't even independent. Okay, so she, she's actually the AG, and so the AG does not get to tell the president that she just doesn't feel like enforcing the stuff that's law. That's, that's silly. Again, it's not unprecedented. It's not like the Saturday Night Massacre, and it is totally legal. All of it is totally legal. Alan Dershowitz says this, too. Alan Dershowitz, the, the, he's a Democrat. Uh, I've taken class with him at Harvard Law School, uh, and uh, Professor Dershowitz says, obviously, he had every capacity to fire this, this, depu- this uh, acting attorney general. It's a political decision. There's an enormous distinction between green card holders on the one hand, people who are in the country and have to be thrown out on the second hand, and people who are simply applying to get visas. There is also a distinction between what's constitutional, what's statutorily prohibited, what's bad policy, this is very bad policy, but what's lawful. And I think by lumping all of them together, she has made a political decision rather than a legal one. And he's exactly right. And because it's a political decision, not a legal one, that person should be fired, right? I mean, that's the and, and so she was fired. The media are using this as an opportunity to bash Trump, but that's not fair to Trump. It's, it's actually a ridiculous criticism of Trump. It doesn't make a whole hell of a lot of sense. Now, as that goes on, the Democrats are using anything as an excuse to try and hold up anything Trump wants to do, which is kind of shocking. If they were smart, what they do is go along with the stuff they like from Trump and then fight him on the stuff they don't like. But there's a mandate now from the donors that they are going to just bash Trump at every opportunity. So today, there are a bunch of Democrats who walked out of their various committees in order to try and hold up the Treasury Secretary nomination of Steve Mnuchin. I'm not a big Mnuchin fan, but that's ridiculous. It's not going to work. Also, what gain do you get from this? What gain do you obtain from blocking Trump's cabinet nominees? It's one thing to vote against them. It's another thing to not even give them an up or down vote in the cabinet, specifically because, I mean, like what, do they think that he's going to come back with a Democrat or somebody even more Democratic than Mnuchin, who's a lifelong Democratic donor? Like, well, what are they aiming for here? It's really quite ridiculous. They're also talking about filibustering Trump's judicial nominee. They've said that they're going to filibuster it all along. I've been contending for a year, a full year, that they were going to filibuster Trump's judicial nominee and that it was dicey whether Mitch McConnell was going to invoke the nuclear option, whether Mitch McConnell was actually the Senate majority leader was actually going to invoke what they call the nuclear option. That means that you take a straight vote on whether to close the on whether to change the filibuster rule. You get rid of the filibuster and then you vote on the justice himself. It's, it's not clear whether McConnell is willing to do that at all, which is why my prediction is, and I, um, I could very well be wrong. I've been wrong before. My prediction is that tonight, Donald Trump is probably going to nominate Thomas Hardiman of the, uh, the Seventh Circuit in Pennsylvania uh, because he is the most stealth candidate. He's the guy who we know least about. And I'll explain in just a second 
why I think that's a bad thing, like what we should actually be demanding of the Supreme Court nominee and what we should be demanding of Trump and what we should be demanding of the Republican Senate in just a second. But in order for you to see that, you have to go over to dailywire.com and become a subscriber. Eight bucks a month allows you to see the rest of the show live. You become part of the mailbag. We have a lot more coming up on today's show. Annual subscribers get a free signed copy of my book, True Allegiance. We also have a Shapiro store that's coming with some really cool gear. I keep promising it. I promise it is actually going to happen. It's not just a myth. Uh, and, uh, and so that will be coming very soon with some goodies there. So go to dailywire.com to become a subscriber and join us. We are the largest conservative podcast in the United States. In expectation of Trump's announcement tonight on his Supreme Court pick, I think that it's important for us to talk about what exactly we should be expecting. And this is true whether you are a conservative who voted for Trump or whether you're a conservative who didn't vote for Trump, particularly if you voted for Trump, though. And a lot of people did this on the basis we have to save the Supreme Court. This better be a good pick. It better be a good pick to replace Scalia. I'm the only pundit in America, as far as I know, mainstream pundit in America. I think Ann Coulter might have also, because we were talking about this at the time. Uh, we, we both, or at least I know I did, opposed John Roberts' nomination to the Supreme Court in 2005. And here's what I wrote about John Roberts in 2005. Quote, perhaps Roberts is a safe pick. He's politically conservative and undoubtedly brilliant. He'll sail through the Senate without much hassle. But it is shocking to watch many constitutional originalists and textualists abandon their philosophies in favor of cheap politics. Roberts is not an originalist. There is nothing in his very short jurisprudential record to indicate that his judicial philosophy involves strict fidelity to the original meaning of the Constitution. He is not Scalia. He is not Thomas. There is nothing to indicate Roberts prioritizes the words of the Constitution above other, more immediate political concerns. We have no choice but to closely examine Roberts' words because he has virtually no judicial record. Bush had a once-in-a-presidency opportunity to nominate a clear originalist. Instead, he abandoned absolute adherence to the Constitution in favor of political expedience. The reason I got that right, folks, is because I have a very simple standard when it comes to a Supreme Court justice. If he hasn't spoken clearly and concisely and obviously in his rulings or publicly on the major issues that surround the judiciary, then he should not be nominated. No more stealth candidates. And I don't care whether that makes Mitch McConnell's job harder, so it's harder. I don't care whether it means you got to somehow cudgel John McCain into voting to shut down the filibuster. Whatever. Do it. Do whatever you need to do to get a solid, a solid originalist on the court. There's a difference between a conservative and an originalist. A conservative is going in there with a certain outcome preordained in their mind on particular cases. An originalist looks at the Constitution and says, what does the Constitution mean at the time it's written? Because all written documents mean what they mean when they're written. All words that you say mean what you mean when you say them. What I'm saying to you right now, when I say right now the Constitution matters, I mean what I mean right now. I don't mean if somebody adds 10 amendments and those amendments totally overthrow the Constitution and then someone quotes me from now, the Constitution matters, and they say in 100 years, what I really meant is I like all those new amendments. That's not what it means. Okay, Words mean what they mean when they're said. Words mean what they mean when they're written. This is true of the Constitution. It's true of the Sherman Antitrust Act. It's true of Obamacare. It's true of every piece of legislation. It is true of every law. In fact, it is true of every mode of human communication. Right? When I mean something and I say it, then I mean what I say now, not 100 years from now, not interpreted as poetry. So that's why it's very important that whoever is nominated have a clear judicial philosophy. We deserve a justice who clearly states, as Scalia did, that the Constitution of the United States is a dead document, not a living one, that it's that is not a piece of poetry to be interpreted. It's not enough to oppose judicial activism. Judges have to actually oppose attempts to redefine constitutional meaning along the lines of personal 
political predilection. Also, we need somebody who actually has a judicial record. It would be nice if they've actually had to judge cases. Now, of the three people who are up for it, it's Hardiman, it's, uh, it's Pryor, supposedly, although he's apparently taken a back seat. So now it's basically down to two. It's down to a fellow named Neil Gorsuch, uh, who is uh, a, a which circuit is he on Sixth Circuit I believe, um, and uh, and then it's the or Fourth Circuit, I'll check it, uh, and then Hardiman who's on the Seventh Circuit. Gorsuch has a, a more plentiful record than Hardiman. He's spoken out on judicial philosophy more than Hardiman. He's a better pick than Hardiman. He's not perfect either. There's some holes in his resume. We don't know how he feels on cases like Roe v. Wade which is an important thing. The reason that Pryor would be good is because Pryor has said Roe v. Wade is the worst constitutional decision in the history of the republic, basically. Good. We should know that. The left routinely, routinely talks about litmus tests for their judges, and the right goes, oh, okay. And then the right refuses to have litmus tests. Of course you should have a litmus test. Here's a litmus test. If the judge won't vote to overrule Roe v. Wade, that judge should not be nominated to the high court. If the judge won't rule to overrule Obergefell, that judge should not be nominated to the high court. That's the, the gay marriage decision. If the judge won't, won't vote to overrule the Obamacare decisions, that judge should not be on the high court. These are very obvious legal principles applied badly in those cases. Of course they should be overruled. And finally... We should look for somebody who actually has a clear judicial record, right, and speaks the truth on cases. So you want somebody who has a clear judicial philosophy, somebody who speaks the truth about cases that have already happened, and somebody with a bunch of cases on their resume. Right now, I don't see that totally from Gorsuch, but I see it more than with Hardiman. I'm hoping it's Gorsuch tonight. If it's Hardiman, that would just be evidence to me that Donald Trump feels that he has the complete approval of Republicans and he can do whatever he wants. And that would be really negative because there's a much stronger chance that Hardiman ends up being a David Souter type or a, or a Anthony Kennedy type than that Gorsuch does, or certainly the prior does, and that's what should matter to all of us. That's the stuff that should really matter when it comes to the Supreme Court pick tonight, so keep an eye out for that. Democrats are going to filibuster no matter what. I joked this morning that if Trump really wants to troll them, he should just nominate Merrick Garland again. He should nominate Obama's pick and make them filibuster Obama's own pick. But, of course, that, that, would, that would be silly because we don't actually want that guy on the Supreme Court. Okay. Meanwhile, while all of this chaos is taking place, the chaos over the immigration executive order continues. Again, the Democrats are still whining about this. They are still making fools of themselves. Bernie Sanders says that this Trump order gives ammo to the jihadists. This is his new line. Thank you all for coming out tonight to send a very loud message to Mr. Trump. And that is your ban in denying people the right to visit our country contradicts everything that this country stands for and what our men and women in the military have fought for. Our job is to bring people throughout the world closer together, not to divide them up. And not only is this ban a violation of what we as Americans stand for, it will make us less safe, not more safe. Because what Trump has done is give ammunition to the jihadists all over the world. So then he he asks for his pudding cup right now. I want a pudding cup, but I do not want a foreign-made pudding cup. I want a pudding cup made in Michigan. It must be made in Michigan by the hands of a brown person for the purposes of diversity. Pudding, pudding. Okay, so there's Bernie Sanders. 
independent socialist from Vermont. So this is the stupidest argument Democrats are making. They've been making this for months, that any time somebody says something they disagree with, it's giving ammunition to jihadists. You know what gave ammunition to jihadists? Barack Obama's entire foreign policy. You know what jihadists like, actually? Importation of vast numbers of Muslims from unvettable areas into the West. They actually are fans of that. And ISIS has talked about exploiting refugees to get into Europe. In fact, there have been refugee situations in Europe on a routine basis. And when he says that the Trump's order gives ammo to the jihadists, this is also sort of a weird argument. The argument seems to be, if Trump doesn't allow enough Muslim refugees or Muslim immigrants into the country, a bunch of people are going to become terrorists. So let me get this straight. A bunch of moderates who are okay toward the United States are now going to become radical jihadists who kill people and chop off their heads because we're not allowing enough Muslims into the United States? Funny, I don't remember. It's amazing. When Jews were not allowed into the United States in the middle of the Holocaust, it actually didn't make Jews a bunch of anti-American terrorists. And talk about the soft bigotry of low expectations. Muslims aren't allowed into the United States in massive enough quantities, and suddenly you're going to get thousands and thousands of Muslims who decide they want to behead Christians? It's a weird argument, at the very least. But again, none of this is coherent. It's just all, it's all gobbledygook babble speak because the Democrats really don't have a lot to say about this. In fact, Chuck Schumer, he was, he's now been doing this routine where he cries over the, over the executive order. Here's the Senate Minority Leader crying over the executive order just a little while ago. So, Mr. President, I'm here to tell you we will fight this. Many of you may know this. My middle name is Ellis. I was named after Uncle Ellis, who was named after Ellis Island. This executive order was mean-spirited and un-American. It was implemented in a way that created chaos and confusion across the country, and it will only serve to embolden and inspire those around the globe who will do us harm. Okay, direct from Chuck Schumer, 2015, November 17, 2015. We're waiting for a briefing tomorrow. A pause in Syrian refugees may be necessary. We're going to look at it. He said that right after the Paris attacks. I don't remember him crying about it. And then also, I have to say, there's this weird thing that's now happening in American politics over the last few years, ever since Bill Clinton, really, where men crying is considered a good thing. You know, back in 1972, there was a Democratic candidate named Edmund Muskie. And Edmund Muskie was considered a frontrunner for the Democratic presidential nomination in 1972. And he was in New Hampshire. And somebody in the press had insulted his wife. And so Ed Muskie apparently teared up. He always claimed he never did. He lost his nomination race based on the idea that he was a wimp. Now if you cry, this just demonstrates how compassionate you are, even if it's, even if it's crocodile tears. Trump, I think, rightly mocks Schumer for crying over this. It's ridiculous. I noticed uh, Chuck Schumer yesterday with fake tears. I'm going to ask him who is his acting coach, because uh, I know him very well. I don't see him as a crier. If he is, he's a different man. There's about a 5% chance that it was real, but I think there were fake tears. <laughs> so is that a smart comment by President Trump? I, I'm not sure it's a smart comment by President Trump, but it is a true comment by President Trump. I mean, every, I love that he actually boils it down to like a betting statistic. There's like a 5% chance that the tears are real, but there's a 95% chance that the tears aren't real. Pretty, pretty great stuff. But it is amazing how over the top the Democrats are getting over this, and so are the media. Lester Holt was anchoring the news last night. He decides to anchor the news with the Statue of Liberty in the background. Remember, this is a guy who actually moderated. This is a guy who actually moderated a presidential debate between Hillary Clinton, the first one, between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. And here he is anchoring the news, not from his very nice million-dollar studios, 
But from in front of the Statue of Liberty to demonstrate that Trump has beheaded the Statue of Liberty or grabbed her by the P word or something. We're going to be bringing you nightly news tonight live from the Liberty State Park in New Jersey. Behind me, of course, the Statue of Liberty. In many ways, it's become a symbol of a country right now wrestling to reconcile its creed versus its security needs. Um, Of course, it was a weekend of protests and confusion over the administration's uh, move to ban certain groups from coming to the country, the refugee crackdown. So we're going to discuss that tonight. We've got all the sides covered in this, the legal debate, the uh, debates about what we saw at the airports, as well as the rationale for the president's decision. So that's coming up tonight on a special edition of Nightly News coming to you from the shadow of the Statue of Liberty. We'll see you then. Come on. Come on. And then when Bannon says that the media is the opposition... How can you not take that seriously when the media is actively acting as the opposition? When, when Obama put a, a six-month pause on Iraqi refugees in 2011 in the middle of the chaos in Iraq, I don't remember Lester Holt anchoring the news or, or anybody else anchoring the news from in front of the Statue of Liberty. I don't remember that. And this is just, it's ridiculous stuff. I'm sorry, it's ridiculous. Trump's executive order is actually really minor. It's actually not going to do anything. That's the amazing thing about the executive order. It doesn't actually do much, right? It bans Syrian refugees for a certain period of time, indefinite period of time. Those refugees will probably be taken in Europe or they'll be taken in the Muslim world. And the idea that it does anything that really ups the screening standards, even that is pretty limited. I mean, we're talking about a temporary pause from seven countries. There are not a lot of people who are coming over from Yemen. There are not a lot of travelers from Yemen, people who are seeking visas from Yemen or Iraq or Iran. You know, this is it's really it's really quite absurd that people are making such a huge deal out of this. It doesn't even include Saudi Arabia. It doesn't include Pakistan. Like, it doesn't, it, as I said yesterday, it's both overbroad and underbroad. As policy, it's not my favorite piece of policy. Does it move the ball forward somewhat? Sure, it moves the ball forward, but the media is treating it like it's the absolute end of the world. And the Trump people, because the media is over the top, this is what's so amazing. If the media just stuck to the green card argument, if the media just said, why in the world would you ban people who already have green cards from getting off their flights, then they'd be on more solid ground. But instead, the media has declared it is a Muslim ban. It is a Muslim ban. It's not a Muslim ban, gang. There are, of, of the 10 most populous Muslim countries on planet Earth, nine of them are still open to immigration to the United States. And it's funny, you know, so many folks on the left very upset about this. Every single one of the countries that is mentioned in that, in that ban from Trump, in, in mentioned in this executive order, I think six of the seven, six of the seven, five of the seven, six of the seven, I think, don't allow Jews in the country, don't allow Jews to visit. I don't see the media crying about that. Pretty, pretty incredible overall. So what they've done is they've actually allowed Trump a defense that's going to make the policy popular in the end. There's this game that's constantly being played now between Trump and the media. And it's a game that, that really is kind of idiotic on both sides. Trump will say something that is out off the wall, right? He'll say like, there are three to five million illegal voters who voted in the last election cycle. And the media will say, no, there aren't. And Trump will say, are you saying there are no illegal voters? And they'll say, no, we're not saying that. And they'll say, well, yeah, you are, because I'm going to launch an investigation. And they'll say, well, you don't need an investigation, because there are no voter fraud. There's no voter fraud. And then they'll say, but there is some voter fraud. And they'll say, right, but not three to five million. He says, right, but you don't want an investigation at all. So eventually, it, it's sort of like the issues are, it, the discussion is in orbit around the issue. Eventually, you land on the issue, but it takes you a while to get there. And by the time you land there, everybody is confused. So Trump's, here's Trump's defense to his executive order. And this this is Stephen Miller's defense. Stephen Miller is the guy who's really been put to the fire because Steve Bannon avoids all responsibility for anything he ever does, as is his want. Uh, here's Stephen Miller, who is uh, one of Trump's policy advisors, and he gets it exactly right. He says, foreign citizens do not have a right to enter the United States. The core 
power of the federal government on immigration is its right to deny entry to any alien at any time if it believes that to be in the national interest and national security interests of the United States. Okay, that's true. That's true. And you know what? It's going to make Trump more popular that he's doing this. Sean Spicer tried to say the same thing. He tried to say that the that what would have happened if we didn't act? What if we didn't do anything here? What happened if we didn't act and somebody was killed? Was there an eminent threat? I, I mean, that's gonna, what you no, seem no, to be implying. But there was no eminent threat. But, but what was I'm going to tell you is, so if something had happened and your answer was, well, if you guys had acted quicker, we could have saved that person. But, Too many of these cases that have happened, whether you're talking about San Bernardino, Atlanta, that they've did happened. Did you have Boston. information that something like that Jerry, was going to happen? Would you wait until you do? The answer is we act so, now to protect Sean, the future. Okay, that is not a horrible argument. It's not a horrible, it's, it's not a good argument for putting this thing out there before it was vetted, before you actually had a policy, while everybody is still confused. But the basic answer there is not is not wrong and not terrible. There's nothing truly terrible about that answer. Of course, everybody wants to be safer, and that's why this policy in the end will actually be relatively popular. So for all of the chaos that's now swirling around the Trump administration, for all the incompetence of this rollout, for all of the incompetence that's, that's now obvious on all sides of the aisle, I don't think any of this is really going to hurt Trump particularly long-term. I don't think this is a long-term issue for Trump, and the narrative is going to shift tonight as soon as he names his Supreme Court justice, and then the media will lose their minds over that, and they'll say it's the worst person who ever lived, no matter who it is. So that'll be very exciting. Okay, time for stuff I like, and then some things I hate, and then it's a Tuesday, so we deconstruct some culture, which is always fun. Okay, things I like. We've been doing things that have to do with Shakespeare this week on things I like, and so we've been, and so I'm doing sort of things that are peripherally associated with Shakespeare a little bit. Not stuff that is, is directly Shakespeare, but stuff that talks about Shakespeare or stuff that concerns Shakespeare. Yesterday we did Slings and Arrows, which is a fantastic Canadian series. Today we're doing Kiss Me, Kate. So this is a Cole Porter musical, and uh, it's based on uh, The Taming of the Shrew. It's the, the, the movie musical is really quite good. Howard Keel, who is just eminently likable on screen and, uh, and a tremendous voice, he and Catherine Grayson star in it. The best number from the show, actually, is the, not between the leads, though. The best number from the show is these two mobsters who sing a song called Brush Up Your Shakespeare, and it is super-duper clever. Uh, here's a little bit of Brush Up Your Shakespeare from Kiss Me, Kate. Ah, he's depressed. Stahl took a powder. It's a dirty shame. Yeah. She's got breeding. You recognize that this dude who's walking in the front, that's James Whitmore. Later, he ends up playing the, uh, the Birdman of Alcatraz in Shawshank Redemption. Right, like 50, like 40 years later, that's who he is. Uh, so, yeah, you can go ahead. And an uncultured. She was a real classy broad. Wild cheer up. You still got your hair. Yeah, and you still got your career, Mr. Graham. Just remember what the immortal bard once said. All the world's at stage, and all the men and women merely players. Unquote. So remember this. The girls today in society go for classical poetry. So to win their hearts, you must quote with these Aeschylus and Euripides. But the poet of them all, who will start them simply raven, is the poet people call the Bard of Stratford-on-Avon. Brush up your Shakespeare. Start quoting him now. Brush up your Shakespeare. And the women you will wow 
Just to claim a few lines from Othello And he'll think you're a heck of a fella If your blonde won't respond when you flatter her Tell her what pony called Cleopatra And if still to be shocked she pretends well Just remind her that all's well That ends well Brush up your Shakespeare And they'll all kowtow So if you can't hear that, I mean, this is tradition, I mean, this is like the best of Cole Porter right here, and it shows you the sophistication of people that they actually got the jokes in this. I mean, the actual lyric is, just to claim a few lines from Othello, and they'll think you're a hell of a fella. If your blonde won't respond when you flatter her, tell her what Tony, called, uh, Tony told Cleopatra, right? Anthony and Cleopatra. The best, the best line from the song is, if she fights when her clothes you are mussing, what are clothes? Much ado about nothing. <laughs> Great line. So, Brush up your Shakespeare from uh, Kiss Me, Kate. There are a lot of adaptations of Shakespeare plays. This is one of the more fun ones, so you can check out Kiss Me, Kate. Uh, it's, a, it's a fun movie, and it, and it still works today. Okay, now it's time for some things that I hate. So, the Boy Scouts of America have decided to be called the Whatever Scouts of America. Uh, They released a statement last night in which they stated openly that they are no longer just going to allow biological boys. They are now going to allow a a bunch of girls, basically. They're going to allow girls who consider themselves boys. And they released a statement. Here is the Boy Scout director talking about why they caved on something as basic as what are boys. Boy Scouts of America. I'd like to update you on an action taken today by our organization so that we can continue to serve as many youth and families as possible. Scouting is about one thing, to prepare young people for life with the goal of instilling in them skills that develop character and leadership. We and others have recently been challenged by a very complex topic on the issue of gender identity. For more than 100 years, the BSA, along with schools, youth sports, and other youth organizations, ultimately deferred to the information on an individual's birth certificate to determine eligibility for and participation in many programs especially single gender programs. After weeks of significant conversations at all levels of our organization, we realized that referring to birth certificates as the reference point is no longer sufficient. Communities and state laws are now interpreting gender identity differently than society did in the past. And these new laws vary widely from state to state. Starting today, we will accept registration in our scouting programs based on the gender identity provided on an individual's application. We will also continue to work with families to find scouting units that are the best fit for their children. In summary, we've taken the opportunity to evaluate and update our approach. I hope you will join with me in embracing the opportunity to bring scouting to more families and children that can benefit from what our program What he ends up offer. saying is he the says BSA that we're no longer going to talk about the birth certificate. Instead, what we're going to do is we're going to defer to the, the, the gender identity the person puts on their application. Okay, this is asinine. If I have a boy, a five-year-old boy who wants to be in the Cub Scouts or in the Boy Scouts, and there's a girl who thinks that she's a boy, and they're in the Boy Scouts also, I'm sorry, but I'm not talking to my five-year-old about gender identity. You want to screw up a kid? The easiest way to screw up a kid is to pretend that there is no malleability when it comes to sexual orientation or gender identity. You can't screw up a kid by talking about these issues with a five-year-old or a six-year-old or an eight-year-old. Okay, kids are confused about these issues, which is why you actually have to model behavior. It's why there are separate Boy Scouts from Girl Scouts. If you didn't want there to be separate Boy Scouts from Girl Scouts, just get rid of the, uh, just get rid of the, the, the total, the, the, the separation altogether. It's absolute idiocy. And it's created by a bunch of people who don't have kids, 
really. These, these policies are generally on the state level created by a bunch of people who don't have kids and aren't interested in raising their kids in traditional ways. And so they suggest that private organizations like the Boy Scouts should have their tax, their tax exemptions revoked based on them not caving to leftist social proprieties. And this is why in the last four years, you've seen the Boy Scouts now allow, gay, allow, now allow openly gay kids in the Boy Scouts, which, again, I don't understand why sexuality has anything to do with the Boy Scouts. It shouldn't. Why they're now allowing openly gay scoutmasters in the Boy Scouts, which is, again, absurd. I don't know why sexuality should have anything to do with the, with the Boy Scouts. And I wouldn't be comfortable with sending my daughter in the Girl Scouts with a guy out into the woods. So I don't see why that changes based on you know, who's the person who's bringing them out there, who has a sexual attraction to people of the same uh, of the of the sex they are now proctoring. And that's not to say that, that and again, that's not a case about gay people being more likely to abuse children, because I don't see any evidence of that. What it is saying is that I'm uncomfortable with sending a pack of girls out to the woods with a with a 21 year old guy. I don't see why I should be any more comfortable sending out a pack of boys to the woods with a gay 21 year old guy like that. That doesn't seem unreasonable to me. That, that, if that seems unreasonable, it's because you don't have children, okay? Or because you have, you have told yourself politically correct silliness about sexual orientation suddenly granting you more, sort of, like, like a, a higher level of, uh, of, of virtue than, no, than uh, non-gay sexual orientation, than straight sexual orientation, which is really silly. Okay, so the Boy Scouts Cave, just another example of great organizations being destroyed from the inside by the left. Okay, other things that I hate. So... As I said before, they're now attacking Tom Brady. They've decided that Tom Brady has to be tossed out on his ear because he supported Donald Trump. Dan Lebetard over at ESPN, who's one of the hosts over there, he's ripping on the Trump executive orders and then denying that it has any impact on ESPN's ratings if they're constantly left wing. Nobody listening to this program has ever seen this country in the place that it is right now where airport is shutting down. Because of things that feel un-American, feel at, at their core principally un-American. Okay, so he says that it's un-American, obviously. And he then says it has nothing to do with ESPN dropping ratings when he talks like this. Except for the fact there's no one on ESPN who will ever, define, who will ever actually say the executive orders are justified. So when you only have one side of the aisle, when you're MSNBC with footballs, you're going to get MSNBC's audience except with footballs. <laughs> and that's basically what's happened to ESPN. Okay, time for a little bit of deconstructing the culture. So... We'll do that right now. So here's the story with Deconstructing the Culture. As we say every week on Deconstructing the Culture, we take a piece of pop culture and then we analyze it for its cultural messages, how it impacts people. Because the truth is that your kids are going to engage a lot more with the people that you see on this little placard for Deconstructing the Culture than they ever will with Ted Cruz or Donald Trump or Chuck Schumer. They're going to engage with cultural figures they like listening to, with the cultural figures that they enjoy watching on TV. And so it's important to look at what's popular and try and determine what exactly our kids, what are people learning about culture and life from culture. As, as my mentor Andrew Breitbart said, culture is downstream from politics. Before we get to that, I do have to say thank you to one of our advertisers over at Birch Gold. So if you are interested in, uh, in investing in precious metals, Birch Gold is the, is the place to be. They have a bunch of five-star ratings from, from their clients, A-plus ratings from the Better Business Bureau, and they can help you move your IRA or your 401k f- into precious metals without significant tax consequences, without any tax consequences as far as I'm aware. So they, they send you a comprehensive 16-page kit telling you how gold and silver can protect your savings. If you're feeling a little bit dicey on the political situation or on the global economy, which I think is fully justified, then you may want to look into 
diversifying into precious metals. Birch Gold Group can help you do that. You go to birchgold.com slash Ben, birchgold.com slash Ben. When you do, you get your no-cost, no-obligation kit that will explain to you what you need to know about precious metals. Ask all your questions, and then when you're ready to invest, talk to my friends over at Birch Gold. Okay, back to deconstructing the culture. So, uh, there's a song that is now in the top 40 by a, a group or a gal named Hey Violet. Do you know this one? Um, and the song is Guys My Age. And we'll play a little bit of it because I think this is actually pretty disturbing stuff. Here's, here's the song Guys My Age. I've been seeing my ex since we broke up Probably cause he didn't want to grow up Now I'm out and wearing something low cut About to get attention from a grown up Cause you hold me So let's just put it straight out there. This song, uh, if you can't see, the, this is why you need to subscribe so you can actually see the imagery. She's dressed in basically what looks like a 17-year-old's outfit, right? Maybe a 16-year-old's outfit. You guys think that's accurate? From like the 1950s. She's outside a diner. She's wearing kind of these hot pants, these these tight silver hot pants. She looks like she's no, she can't be more than 20. How old is this this gal? Do we have any clue how old this uh, the, the lead singer in this, in this group is? Um, it's... Um, Let's see. I don't even know the names of the people in the group, um, but I'd like to find. I guess it's um, it's Rena Lovelace. So I don't know how old she is. Now I want to look it up. Uh, Rena Lovelace was born. Let's see. She is 18 years old. She's 18 years old. So she's barely legal, as they like to say in the industry. Uh, and uh, and the problem here is that she's posing as somebody. The, the whole basis of this is that she's basically a 16 year old who brought who who uh, was uh, going out with her boyfriend and broke up with her boyfriend, and now she is going to a bar, and she wants to hook up with older guys. Okay, this is a, a recipe for statutory rape charges, depending on the, on the age difference between the girl and the guy. The, the lyrics, guys my age don't know how to treat me, don't know how to treat me, don't know how to treat me. Guys my age don't know how to touch me, don't know how to love me good. And then you, you never hold me like, you hold me like a woman in a way I've never felt before. Okay, all of this, this idea, I, I'm about to get attention from a grown-up, I don't know how to read this in any way other than this is jailbait stuff. Is there any other way to read this? That this is basically supposed to be, and, and it, here's the thing about pop culture. What pop culture does is it generalizes the particular. That's what art tends to do. Art takes your situation, and then it generalizes it to all of humanity. That, of course, is why we identify with art. So, if you are a, a disgusting guy who's 25 years old, and you're watching this video, you might get the misimpression, and, you know, that's not entirely the fault of the artist, but it has something to do with the artist. You might get the misimpression that there are a bunch of 16 and 17-year-old girls who are looking to go out with and have sex with guys who are 25, 30, 40 years old. That is not a good message. That is not a good message. And yet, this is the sort of stuff being promulgated by pop culture and treated as totally normal. It's transgressive with a 16-year-old. She looks 16 in this video. She's only 18 in real life. So there's that. Okay, on the other side of the aisle... There's another song that's in the top 40 now. It's the new Britney Spears song. Britney Spears is now 173 years old, uh, and her knees creak when she attempts to dance, but she has a new song called Slumber Party. And so this is the, here's, here's part of her song, Slumber Party, which is not a good song, just like all the other Britney Spears songs, but here we go.
Boy, she's had work done. From this potion. Pillow fights and feathers overdosing. Smells like a cologne and candy lotion. Like a somber body. Sheets all on the floor just like an ocean. Building up your fortress like a mountain. Neither see what causing a commotion. First of all, I just, just a quick aesthetic note. It would be nice if every once in a while she'd clear her throat and actually sing. It's like she inhaled helium from a child's birthday party before doing her song. In any case, the, here are the actual lyrics. It's a little bit difficult to hear the lyrics. I love, I love that her new form of dancing, by the way, it looks like my grandmother attempting to struggle with her walker. Like, she, she can't move anymore. Like, you can see that she's having trouble actually move. Like, she can swivel her hips, but only if her feet are completely stable. Anyway, the, the lyrics to this thing are, I think I see confetti from this potion, pillow fights and feathers overdosing, smells like a cologne and candy lotion, like a slumber party. Okay, so when I was growing up, slumber parties did not generally involve orgies. Yeah, maybe just, maybe just my childhood, but I wasn't aware that this was a thing, that slumber parties were orgiastic excesses. Um, and, uh, and then... Some girl who sort of looks like Kim Kardashian shows up and they're like doing something that I don't understand. In any case, uh, the, the, here's the thing. What our culture has decided is that it is important for girls, for, for young girls, young women who are not even of age to be treated like adults and for adults to be treated like children. Right? Adults should now be treated like children and children should be treated like adults. So if you're 16 and you want to go out with an older guy and wear something low cutout, that's totally fine. There's no problem there. And if you are Britney Spears and you're 83,000 years old, you're going to hijack the tropes of being an 11 year old and you're going to have a quote unquote slumber party. And I, I love the fact that the slumber party here, what they do is they basically make it into a lesbian orgy slumber party in this video. So it's not just that you're having a slumber party with your friends. Now it's a lesbian orgy slumber party for the consumption, presumably, of straight males who are horny in the audience. So all of this, all this does is it erases the lines between mature behavior and not mature behavior. See, one of the great misnomers in American culture is this idea that adult entertainment, that pornography is adult entertainment. Really, pornography is adolescent entertainment. Okay, once you're an adult, you realize there's responsibility that comes along with sex, that there's responsibility that comes along with relationships. But Hollywood teaches precisely the opposite. Pop culture teaches precisely the opposite. When you're an adult, you get to act like a child. And when you're a child, you should, you should aspire to be an adult acting like a child. So perennial adolescence for everyone, all of which dumbs down virtue and turns it into an empty, an empty vessel. Okay, so that brings us to the end of today's show. We will have Donald Trump's pick for the Supreme Court tomorrow, and I'm sure that'll give us plenty to talk about. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. We'll get to more on this in just one second. First, Pure Talk believes in American values and that free should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So, 
I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving.